Thank you, Pastor Tim, for that beautiful prayer of supplication. Um, you can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 50, uh, 46. It helps if we get the right one. Uh, most of you know that this past week, uh, Tuesday, I celebrated yet another birthday. And I want to thank you for your many expressions of kindness and uh, celebration and no joking and uh, that kind of thing. Uh, actually, I had a good day. I celebrated it well and had good health and praise God for that. I thought about this story. I heard about this one fellow that turned 65 and he was, he was, his wife noticed that he was just seemingly getting depressed about turning 65. So being the loving bride that she was, uh, she encouraged him to say, let's just get away and go down to the beach and just get away and get your mind off of it. And so he agreed. They went down to the beach to celebrate his birthday. And so they were walking along the beach and talking, holding hands, you know, and, and lo and behold, they came upon what appeared to be a, a bottle sticking up out of the sand. I know some of you are thinking, oh no, here we go. Uh, but yeah, they did. And so, this, um, and so they picked it up and he began to brush the sand off of that old bottle and it, it poof, out of it popped a genie. It's a true story. And uh, <laughs> so, so the genie says, you each get one wish. The guy said, well, wait, wait a minute, it's my birthday. Why is she get? He says, because I'm a non-discriminating genie. You both get one wish. He said, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. What happened to three wishes? You know, the genie says, times are hard. One wish, go ahead now. So turn to the lady first, and so she thought, she thought, she said, I, genie, I would love for me and my husband to be on a deserted island out in the Bahamas, complete with palm trees, and just, just the two of us to, to live and have everything provided for us, and poof, there they were. Turquoise blue water, you know, nice gentle uh, tropical breezes blowing, tall pine, uh, pine palm trees, coconuts, and, oh, just, just gorgeous. And so now the genie turns to the man and says, okay, buddy, says, your turn. So he thinks and he looks and he's looking at his wife, you know, and he says, genie, I, I would like for my wife to be 30 years younger than me. Poof! The genie turned to 95 years old. <laughs> so... I can appreciate that because I'm not 65 yet. But anyway, as we look at, as we continue in the series of the Psalms, a series that I've simply entitled Life Lessons from Psalms, there's so much to learn from these ancient writings uh, out of the Word of God that are certainly inspired by the Word, by the Spirit of God, and, and have great truth for us to apply to our lives. I thoroughly enjoyed the message uh, that... Uh, Dr. Denny Altry brought to us last week, uh, taken from Psalm 96, and, and, um, and he, he helped us to understand that, that there are three types of psalms. There are psalms of lament, there are psalms of thanksgiving, and there are psalms of praise. And the psalm that we're looking at this morning in Psalm 46, that in my Bible is entitled, God the Refuge of His People and Conqueror of the Nations, is actually a psalm of praise. And, and this psalm is written to give praise to God, to lead the people of God in worshiping the Lord and giving Him praise for these attributes that we will find uh, enumerated here in Psalm 46. It's interesting. This is not a psalm of David. I think up to now, I, uh, the psalms that I preach from have been psalms of David. King David, the shepherd boy that was anointed to be king. But now, you'll notice in the subscript of or the heading of your Bible there, if it talks about who the uh, authors are, it says, To the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. 
the sons of Korah. Now, there's an interesting history behind this group of, of Levites. You see, if you were to go back into your, your Bibles, into the Old Testament book of Numbers 16, beginning in verse 1, you'll find an interesting story because the, there was a man by the name of Korah, uh, who was a Levite, and he accompanied by several other Levites and then some other leaders of the congregation, if you will, of the children of Israel as they were making the trek through the wilderness. They all of a sudden decided that... that Somehow, it's not right that Moses has this in with God. That Moses is the one that tells everybody what to do. That God speaks only to Moses and through Moses to the nation of Israel. So they challenged Moses and Aaron's authority as the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. And, and basically said, look, we're an equal opportunity nation here. God, you know, we have all have equal access to God. God speaks through us just as well as he does through you. And of course, this upset Moses, but it upset God more. So God spoke to Moses and simply told him, said, well, just have Korah and his buddies and the 250 men that are backing him to um, gather before the, the tent of worship tomorrow, the tabernacle, and let them burn incense if, as if they had the same access that Aaron does to you. And so here comes Korah the next morning and, and those uh, half a dozen other Levites and other leaders and the 250 men that were supporting them. And so they began, and Moses tells the congregation, you, you, you choose who you're going to stand by. But I'm paraphrasing, but he said, basically, you need to know if, <laughs> if you stand with them, whatever God does to them, it's going to happen to you. And I wouldn't recommend you stand with them. And the congregation, the, the, the people in mass moved away from Korah and those gathered who were rebels, if you will. And the Bible tells us there in Numbers 16 that the Lord caused the earth to open up. A place that had not been there before. This was not a, 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 a place that was a, a chasm, if you will. But out there on the plains in the wilderness, God caused the earth as if it was a shark opening up its jaws to open up a vast hole that looked straight down into what is called the pit. And it began to swallow up Korah and his buddies and all of their families and household and, and, and everything. And whew, down into the pit they went alive, the Bible says, screaming and crying. And, and then the earth covered up. Not a nice way to end your life. And then the Bible says, for the rest of the 250 men who had joined in the rebellion, if you will, God caused a massive fire to come forth from the Lord and consumed every one of them. The only thing left were the censers that they were burning the incense in. God made a powerful statement when He chooses a leader. He anoints a leader. That's who you follow. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because in Numbers chapter 26, in verse 9 through 11, it tells us that though all the households of all the other men that were with Korah, uh, Eliab and Dathan and Abiram, all of their households were destroyed along with them, swallowed up, if you will. In verse 11, chapter 26, 
of Numbers, it says, Nevertheless, the children of Korah did not die. That wasn't just a fluke that God just overlooked them. Because you see, God had plans for the descendants of this rebel. Some of the greatest men and women of faith in the kingdom of God down through the ages and even today are children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren of villainous characters. People that you would have thought, how in the world could somebody so godly and so faithful to the Lord come out of a family like that? Well, we're looking at a passage, a, 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 a psalm in the Scriptures that is written by the descendants of Korah, the sons of Korah, the Levites, who have written this hymn that speaks of God as a fortress, a refuge for His people. Now, what I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, is we are living in dangerous times. We're living in a very evil and sinister and increasingly volatile world. And it can be intimidating. And it can strike at the heart of any person. But here's the thing God wants us to know. He wanted His people then to know. He wants you and I to know today. We do not need to be troubled in our spirit. We do not need to be intimidated. We certainly don't need to live in a spirit of fear. Why? Because we have God with us. His very presence brings to us protection. And His very presence brings to us help. And so, let's begin reading in chapter, uh, verse 1 of Psalm 46. And remember, the Psalms are like a songbook. And so these would have been sung by the congregation, but they were very worshipful. I don't know the tune. And it's interesting because one of the, the footnotes in the heading, it says, a song for Alamoth. It's interesting because in the Hebrew that means young maidens. We would interpret that, and I'm not a musical person. I'll be letting Pastor Chad tell you about this, or Amy, or some of those. But, but basically, this would have been a song that would have been sung by women with high voices, sopranos. So if we were doing this at Cornerstone, it would be the ladies with the high soprano voices that would be singing this, leading the congregation and singing. But that's neither here nor there. We're not going to sing it. You're going to read it and you're going to study it and let God apply it to your heart today, right? Amen? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Selah, stop, pause. Now, first thing that I want us to, to understand and glean is when we talk about the presence of God, we need to understand as followers of Christ, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as God's people today, that, that the presence of God is all sufficient Everything we need is in the presence of God. And if we focus upon and dwell in the presence of God, we will find the, 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 the refuge we need. God's people find in His presence, if you will, stability and security. The Lord's protection is instantly accessible. Aren't you glad for that? 
Aren't you glad that you don't have to run down to some cathedral and find some priest and get into a, a, a closet and, and ask him to intercede so that you can ask God to help you? Aren't you glad that no matter where you are, what you're facing, that God is right there with you? His help is readily available 24-7. I don't know about you. I'm mighty glad. And he is present. His protection is instantly accessible over and over throughout the history of the nation of Israel. The Israelites, the Jewish people, whenever threatened by hostile forces, they found that God was an available refuge for them. That is, unless God was using other nations to punish them for their rebelliousness. But otherwise, whenever they were in trouble, they always knew that God was available. He was there to help in times of trouble. I think about in Isaiah 58.9 where through the prophet Isaiah God is saying to you and I He says, Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and He will say, Here I am. Have any of you ever found that to be the case? Come on. You've you've never called out to God and and found that He's right there? Yeah. Now, I don't mean that He answered back audibly. He could. But every time, every time, that I've called upon the Lord, He's been right there. And every time that I've been distraught in my spirit, you know, God has basically said through His Word, through, by His Spirit, He'll say, now, 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 Charlie, I'm here. I'm right here. It's kind of like when we comfort our children, you know, something very scary, you know, and, and, and startling happens to them, you know, and maybe a thunderstorm or something like that, and, you know, and we have to kind of reassure them, hey, hey, calm down, calm down, you know. I know Pastor Tim has to do this for that big dog of his too. But anyway, you know, you know, sometimes people get startled, animals get startled. But God is saying to us, here I am, no matter what the circumstances are, how hostile things are, God is a very present help to us. Not only that, but, but as the psalmist is saying, He's our refuge, He's our strength. But God's strength, the Lord's strength is readily available to us. He always supplied the strength. Listen, the nation of Israel in its pinnacle of strength and power were never strong on their own. Their strength and their power always came through their faith and trust and dependence upon God. My goodness, they were ex-slaves. They were a nobody nation. They were nothing. They were wandering as nomads in a wilderness. And yet they conquered the promised land. Let me tell you something. They didn't conquer the promised land. God conquered the promised land. (laughs) But they knew where their strength came from. It came from the Lord. David realized that. That little shepherd boy that went out on the battlefield as the, as the nation of Israel was facing the Philistines and the Philistines propped their big nine and a half foot giant champion Goliath up there who challenged them. Come and fight me. If you beat me, we'll be your slaves. But if I beat your man, you know, and nobody would go and face this giant except this one shepherd boy who understood who God really was because he called him the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want David understood that whatever he needed, doing whatever God called him to do, God would always supply it, including the strength they needed. So here he is, this ruddy looking little shepherd boy going up against this nine and a half foot tall giant. And and, and Goliath is calling him all kinds of derogatory names and cursing him and everything. And this shepherd boy, the only thing he says is, you come against me with a dagger and a sword and a spear. I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. You want to pull out a big name of God, you pull that one out of the closet. I come against you in the name of the 
of El Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. You know what that name means in the Hebrew? It means He is the commander of all of creation. He has power and victory over every adversary. David said, that's who I'm here. He's, he's my champion. So David knew where his strength rests. But you know what? Even contemporary Christians today, do you understand we have access to an unimaginable source of strength? Problem is, so many times we try to do everything in our own strength. Amen? We try to solve our problems and work through our dilemmas and, and, and face the hardships on our own and, and we fall on our face and we wonder why God is saying, look, don't try to do it. Paul says in, in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Listen, God is our refuge. He is our protection. He is our very source of strength. You and I know that today, just as the Israelites were in constant battles against the adversaries, those who were rebelling against God, they were constantly fighting against the enemies of God. Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? These are not days of peace for the church. But you realize it or not, you and I are engaged in spiritual warfare every day. We get up and put one foot in front of the other. We have a spiritual enemy that's out there poised, equipped, and ready to combat us at every curve and turn. And you better not try to engage in spiritual warfare against powers that are supernaturally endued with power far greater than what you possess on your own. That's why I appreciate Ephesians chapter 6 where the Apostle Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And put on the whole armor of God. Not just part of it, but the whole armor of God. That you might resist the evil schemes of the devil. Listen, we have strength. God is our source of strength because of His presence in our lives. God's people can also be fearless in the face of natural disaster. And we see that in verses 2 and 3. Where he talks about, therefore we will not fear. Though the earth be removed. And through the mountains. And, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Do you understand? To the ancient Israelite, the Hebrews, mountains, the earth, they represented stability. Strength. I mean, you know, the rock of Gibraltar, and you know, uh, Jesus even gave the illustration. If you've got faith as, as a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. In that day, nobody moved a mountain. Nowadays, with the help of heavy-duty excavation equipment and things and dynamite, we can move parts of mountains. If you don't believe me, drive up through the boon and blowing rock and just see how they carve through. But, but, but you know... A mountain was stable. The earth, the earth was solid and stable. And yet, the, the psalmist is saying, even though we would experience cataclysmic, cosmic events, whereby the mountains would be shaken from their foundations or swept into the sea, or the earth would be shaken. Listen, he said, we, we don't have to fear. He talked about how Though the waters roar and be troubled, and the waters, the sea, so oftentimes symbolically would speak of the, of the, of the political or the social climate of the people. And, and, you know, if, if everything was nice and everything was congenial, then the seas were calm, if you would. 
the sea of humanity would be calm. But in scriptures, when it talks about the sea roaring, it means trouble. There's, there's war, there's, uh, there's animosity, and there's chaos. And, and, and so any time that trouble came along, it was oftentimes pictured as a stormy sea. And, and yet the psalmist is saying, because of the presence of God, even when these cataclysmic things happen, and ladies and gentlemen, listen, I, I'm not a specialist in catastrophes, but we've seen our share just in our time. My goodness, we've seen how a tsunami virtually destroyed the nation of Japan. We've seen how a hurricane by the name of Katrina about submerged the whole metropolis of, of New Orleans. We, we've, we've seen how earthquakes have shattered a nation, an island nation like Haiti. I mean, my goodness, we've seen some horrible, catastrophic things as we look at the state of, uh, of California. My goodness, they've about burned up. Wildfires that burn out of control. Oh, listen, I believe many of us were listening carefully when Pastor Tim last Sunday in his supplication prayer, I believe he, was, he, he made it so clear that against these mighty forces that bring such catastrophe and such pain in this world, listen, it's so great to know that when we feel so weak and helpless, we have a God who is there for us. And because of that, in the midst of these catastrophic cosmic events, God's people do not have to live in fear and intimidation. Do you understand that faith is the antithesis of fear? Is that not what the Apostle Paul was saying in 2 Timothy? In chapter 1 verse 7? He says, but God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So when we have faith in God, listen, it should dispel fear. Now, does that mean I don't have some apprehensions or some concerns? You know, if I'm walking through the woods and I look down and there's a copperhead coiled up, ready to go into action, you know, I don't just say, well, look at that cute little snake. I'm not afraid of him. <laughs> God gives us a healthy fear, okay, of things that we should be afraid of. But listen, he doesn't tell us in the Word of God that we should live in a spirit of fear. No, we don't need to. And I believe the psalmist is they're leading the people of worshiping God and celebrating His presence and the fact that He is our refuge. He is our protection. He is our help. We need not live in fear. But also we see not only is the, the presence of the Lord absolutely sufficient but we also see that we have complete security in God's presence absolute security in God's presence it's interesting as we look further in verse 4 it seems as if the scriptures the writers are speaking prophetically and I'll explain look at verse 4 there's a river Whose streams shall make glad the city of God. Now just notice the contrast between that and verse 3. Where the waters were roaring and troubled and dangerous. Now all of a sudden this body of water brings joy. There's a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. The holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. And shall not be moved. God shall help her. Just at the break of dawn, the nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. 
The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The psalmist and faithful, and I emphasize faithful, Israelites, Jews, found security in the city of Jerusalem. It was built high on a, a, a mountain, Mount Sion, and it was the highest structures in the region. And high above all the valleys below with the massive walls that surrounded it. And there were the palaces of the king. But then the most prominent structure was that great wonder of, of, of the world at that time. The, the, the temple that Solomon had built to honor Jehovah God. And to the average Jew, that represented a place of of refuge and, and strength and, and, and they could depend upon this place because it was a place, the city that was made sacred by the presence of God. Look at, just jump over to the next psalm in Psalm 48, or, or, over 2. Just look at the word in, in verse 48, or, or chapter, Psalm 48, verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in His holy mountain, Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. The thing that set Jerusalem apart in the eyes of the, all, all the Jews was this is where God's presence dwelt. And as they came on their pilgrimages for the festivals up that, that uh, winding trail leading up to the city of Jerusalem, they could see that beautiful temple with this uh, white limestone and, all, and just gleaming in the sun. And they knew that that beautiful structure represented the, 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 the presence of holy God. And it was there that they would meet. But the interesting thing is, to my knowledge, there's no river that flows out of Jerusalem. But there is a river the scriptures speak of that flows out of the new Jerusalem. I believe prophetically that the writers of this psalm were looking ahead to Revelation 22 when John gives us in that great revelation, if you will, of the city of God. Listen as he describes here in Revelation chapter 22, listen as he describes this great wonder we know as New Jerusalem in, ver in chapter 22 of Revelation verse 1, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits. Each tree yielded its fruit, or yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is the new millennial eternal city of God, the new Jerusalem. And out of that, it says, flows this river of water that gives life. Isn't it interesting? Because we think about, we, we just studied in our Christian growth group lessons, talking about Eden, paradise. Where God started everything, and there in that in that Eden, in that garden, there was there were rivers that that emanated out of the, that place that was the presence of God, and, uh, and there in the midst of that that garden was a tree of life. So we find 
bookend, if you will, at the very beginning, and at the very end, reference to a river and trees of life. And, and the psalmist is saying, there is a river whose who streams shall make glad the city of God. And in, in that future scene, it sure will. The holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. In the darkest of times when, when nations were coming against. I think about how the Assyrians had mounted a great march against the city of Jerusalem. And it appeared that they were about to, to be conquered by this great massive Assyrian army. And, and God sent one angel and, and slew what 185,000 Assyrian troops in the darkness, when they thought that there was no hope, at the dawn, God delivered the city that represented His very presence. The city was made strong by the presence of God. You know, Solomon was given the privilege of building the temple of God there in the heart of the city of God. And you know, it's interesting in, in 2 Chronicles 7.15. We're so familiar with 7.14. When we talk about revival, when we talk about that, we quote that passage, you know, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked deeds. That's what God was telling Solomon. But, but in verse 15, listen to what God tells Solomon about the temple and subsequently the city. He says, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place for now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked and do according to all that I've commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom. In other words, God said to Solomon, he says, listen, if the nation will be obedient, if the nation will follow me faithfully, then this city will be a refuge. I will protect it. It will be a safe place for my people to abide. He said, man, it would be great if we had a city like that today. I don't know if you all feel like you can go in, in the midst of danger. You know, you say, well, honey, we got, we got to pack up and go to Washington, D.C., Number one, good luck. You won't get there because of the traffic. Number two, strategically, that's probably the worst place you could be because if anybody's going to nuke us, they can probably shoot one there first. So don't go to Washington, D.C. Go to some obscure little town like Roxboro, North Carolina. For those of you who have guessed, that's where I grew up. It's a rural little country town. But anyway, there is a city. The people of God today have a great sense of security because, number one, we have the presence of God. We have an advantage that even the ancient Hebrews didn't have. David and Solomon and that group. We have an advantage because they were looking ahead to a Messiah coming. They had great prophetic promises that God was going to send the Messiah to deliver His people. Let me tell you something. You and I are looking back in history. We know that Messiah has come. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the only begotten Son of God. He gave His life as the Holy Lamb of God on the cross. And He died in, for our sins. He was buried. He was resurrected on the third day. Ascended into heaven at the right hand of God the Father. He has sent His Holy Spirit to abide within the life of every born again true believer of Jesus Christ. He is with us. In a way that the ancient Hebrews never knew that. 
And so if ever there were a people on the face of the earth that had confidence in the midst of trouble and trials, listen, it is us because we have the very presence of God. We don't have to go to some municipality. We don't have to go to some geographic location. I feel so sorry for them thousands and thousands of Muslims that feel so obligated by their, their works-oriented beliefs and religion that they have to make this very expensive and dangerous trip of pilgrimage to Mecca where you know the danger is not just flying there. The danger is not just in getting robbed on the way there. The danger is once you're there, you're going to get trampled. We don't have to go to some location to experience the presence of God because Jesus said in Matthew 28, In verse 20, to all of His disciples, He says, Lo, I am with you wherever you go to the end of the age. And and, and, and the beautiful thing is that Jesus builds up His church. Didn't He say that in Matthew 16, 18? He says, Upon this rock I will build My church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He's talking about the church. He's talking about us. Now, he's not talking about building a physical edifice, a building, even though church buildings are nice, and I have nothing against that. But please don't mistake the church as if it were brick and mortar and stained glass windows and cushioned pews. The church is a building, but in a spiritual sense, it is a dwelling place of God. How do I know that? Because if you look over in Ephesians, in chapter 2, you'll find some beautiful words given to us In this metaphor by the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church at Ephesus there. But he's also writing to you and me. And there, and I love this passage there in Ephesians in chapter 2. If you would just begin reading with me there in verse 19. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19. The Apostle Paul says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Isn't that a great thing to know? Man, I love family reunions. And my family's a big family, so it's like Custer's last stand with all those Indians running around. But we have a great time. We eat a lot and have a great time playing games and having fun. I love big families. I love the family of God. I love to go to places where there are other Christians gathering conventions, conferences, and just say, hey, brothers and sisters. Because it's a wonderful thing. Well, I digress. But, but he says we're members of the household of God. Please don't be offended if I slip up and call you sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so, unless you are not that gender, okay? Uh, And that's just because I can't see as well because I'm getting older. But anyway, verse 20 of uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Having, listen to what he says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, the church, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Do you get it? There is a temple being built. There's a beautiful temple being built. It's not made of limestone. It's not made of of brick. It's not made of mortar. It's made of redeemed souls called the people of God. And it's being built even now. Every time somebody heeds the gospel call and comes to Jesus Christ, there's another portion of the temple being built. We are in a building program that none has ever equaled. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, verse 21, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Look at verse 22. In whom you also are being built together. Why? For the habitation of God in the Spirit. So when somebody asks you, 
Now, where on the earth could I go today to be in the presence of God? Would it be the Vatican City? Would it be Jerusalem, the Holy Land? So no, just find you some Christians. Just find you some Christians. And brother, you are in the presence of God. You are in the midst of the very temple of God that is being built right now. You are in the very habitation of Almighty God. You understand why it's important? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, when he says, Forsake not the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some. God help these poor, misled, so-called Christians that say, oh, I, don't, I don't need to go to church to worship. I'd be down here on the lake fishing. And I'd be worshiping God. I don't want to go, of course, fishing. I mean, God, well, <laughs> see, I don't like God. I'm always thinking about fishing. But anyway, you, you can be at the park. You can be on a walk in the mountains. Oh, I don't need to be. A, oh, yes, you do. Yes, you. We need each other. You want to feel and sense the presence of God. There is no better place on the face of the earth than where God's people are gathered. Amen? And that's what it means. And so we have the, the security of knowing that when we come together, even when the volatility of the world may threaten our security, Christ is with us. Christ is with us. I need to move along. Verse 6, The nations raged, the kingdoms are moved. He uttered His voice, the earth melted. You know, it's interesting because you think about the earth being destroyed by water, but God promised, as we learned in our Christian growth group lessons, He'd never destroy the world by water again, but He would by fire. I won't read it out because I, I know that we have, our time is moving along, but my goodness, jot down in your notes, if you will, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7, verse 10 through 13. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7, 10 and 13, because Peter tells us very clearly there that, yes, indeed, God will bring judgment upon this world. He will not destroy this world by water again. He promised that. But He will destroy this world again. He will destroy it by fire. And Peter tells us that at the end of time, when God brings judgment upon this old earth, it will be absolutely consumed in fire. And every material thing, I feel so sorry for those people that are building monuments in their names and buildings in their names and all these things that they'll leave back to carry on their legacy. Listen, it's all going up in smoke. It's all going to melt in the most intense fire that the universe has ever experienced. And that's what he says. He uttered His voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts in verse 7 is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. And you'll notice that's repeated in verse 11 again. Well, we need to look along because I want you to see not only that we have the supreme or the security of God's presence and the sufficiency of God's presence, but understand the supremacy, the supremacy of God's presence. In verse 8, Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. So reminiscent of the words of Micah chapter 4 when he talks about people beating their, plow, their, their swords into plowshares and no, no, no longer needing weapons. God's going to destroy the weapons of warfare. In verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God, the Lord of hosts, is with us. 
But you'll notice that he also makes that reference in verse 7 and verse 11 when he does that repetition. He says the God of Jacob is our refuge. What's so significant about that? Why do you repeat it twice? The God of Jacob. Hmm. Jacob's name was changed, wasn't it? Jacob was a trickster. He started out as in a young life. He, he wasn't the most honorable of men. He was a trickster. Always trying to get over on people. Trying to get over on God. Finally God got a hold of him. Wrestled with him all night. God changed his name to Israel. He became a mighty nation. But here's the thing. Israel didn't choose God. God chose Israel. They were a chosen people. What does that speak of? It speaks of the grace of God. Jesus talked about that in John chapter 15, verse 16, when He told His disciples, you didn't choose Me, but I chose you. I chose you. And therefore we find refuge in this God who loves us, who by grace has chosen us, and has made us to be His people. Listen, one day, He will calm the storms of our sinful world. The psalmist reflects upon the sovereignty of God when he talks about, come and look. See the works of the Lord. He's made desolations in the earth. And God did. My goodness, look at the Egypt. Virtually destroyed the nation of Egypt in delivering His people. Look what He did to the surrounding uh, uh, nations uh, that, that as the children of Israel were conquering the promised land. <laughs> he was destroying them left and right. He was destroying pagan cities. He, he destroyed the Assyrian army. He destroyed the Babylon as an empire. Listen, God has laid desolation where He's brought judgment on those who rebelled against Him. But nothing will compare to the desolation that is waiting for the judgment of God in the end of time. And the psalmist reflects upon that. But he offers hope and encouragement that God, even though He brings judgment upon the earth, He will bring peace. And He will manifest it as, it, as He exalts Himself over all of creation. One day, the wars will cease. How do we know that? You know, again, if I, if I take you ahead in time in, in prophecy, and, and we know that after the Great Tribulation, when Jesus returns and sets up His thousand-year reign on the earth, and you would think, my goodness, Jesus here reigning for a thousand years, everything would be... After that, it's got to be just great and peachy and everything. But you know, it's interesting because Satan, who's been bound up for this thousand years in the pit, is released. Isn't that something? One last fling. And boy, is it a fling. Listen to how John describes it in the Revelation in chapter 20, verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as of the sand of the sea. You're talking about a lot of people ready to fight against God's holy city, God's people, and God. Verse 9. It was a short battle, by the way. They went up to the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, Jerusalem, and the fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Poop! Over! That's it. The last war. The last battle. Satan. A myriad of enemy troops. There wasn't even a shot fired. They assembled for the greatest battle of the history of humanity and God simply spoke. Whew! The only one left 
standing with Satan. Don't you think he felt a little intimidated? <laughs> and God didn't give him much time either because he says, Goodbye, old boy. And immediately he was cast down into the fires of hell where it says he was in torment forever and ever and ever. You see, when God wants to bring war to a halt, He'll do it. He will do it. There is coming a time when there'll be no need for spears and, and chariots, all of that. He'll break the bow. God destroyed all of that. You see, look what He says in verse 10. I've oftentimes looked at that and, 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 and said, you know, be still and know that I am God. And I thought, well, you know, God's telling me that because, you know, when I have troubles and things are happening, you know, God's saying, calm down, calm down, be still, Charlie. Just know that I'm God. Now, that's true. That's, that's true. But in the context, speaking prophetically, <clears throat> God will speak. In a time of turmoil, in a time of warfare, God will speak. Do you remember in Mark's Gospel in chapter 4, there, the different Gospels have different renditions of Jesus and His disciples out on the sea. The disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee and there was a storm that came up. You remember they were in trouble and they were crying out, you know, Lord, save us. Save us. Don't you care that we're going to perish? And, you know, Jesus got up. He's a little bit aggravated. They just got Him up from a nap. I don't like to get woken up in a nap, but, but, but they woke him up from a nap. He was sleeping like a baby at the back of the boat. Gets up, you know, and he looks and sees and sees, you know, the wind's blowing, the waves are crashing, his disciples are scared, they're white as a sheep. <laughs> and he says, you know, oh, you little faith. And then I like what he did, just like he's talking to a dog that's barking out there and disturbing you and the neighbors at midnight, you know. He sticks his head out, he doesn't just say, hey, hey, Poochie, could you keep it down? Jesus speaks to the seas and, and to the wind and says, Peace, be still! In other words, cut that out. And like an intimidated puppy dog, the seas, the wind stop. And the disciples said, Whoa. Well, listen, same wording, same concept. Look what he says. Be still. God is saying. He's saying to all the world, He's saying to all those who are seeking to war and rebel against Him, He said, be still. Stop it! And of course, a great breath of fire comes down from heaven, consumes thousands and thousands of enemy troops. And when God says, stop it, folks, it's over. It's over. And thus it ushered in the great new eternal reign of Christ. The glory of the Lord has dwelt. The presence of God has been with His people historically in the nation of Israel. His glory, His presence is with us now. Keep that in mind when you watch the news. Keep that in mind when you hear these horrible reports of violence and corruption. Keep in mind that God is still on the throne. He is still with us and He will be with us to the end of time. God, eternal God, sovereign God, He is our refuge. He is our strength. Be encouraged, Christians. Be strengthened, church. Move forward. And the call and the commission that God has given us. And don't be intimidated by forces that would seek to do just that and rob you of the blessing to be faithful to God. Let's pray.